Yeah, we had a bunch of new shooters at our rimfire match this last weekend, and uh, it was two dads and their kids. And man, it's really cool to see how you know we talk about rimfire, and you know we know the limitations of what it can do, but it's it's a really cool tool that brings, especially dads and sons, if they're looking for something to do together. Man, is it such a cool tool to help build some connections around a sport? That's fairly rare unless you're the coach and the son is playing but in this case both can compete it's super cool to watch that dynamic and uh, i think if anyone out there is listening and they're you know you have some kids who are in their you know late single digits to early teens you know guys or girls for that matter give it a shot see if you can get them into a 22 match you know when it's the right time and see if they like it's always the right time it's yeah (laughs) Just see if you can get them into that competitive mode. They're gonna, they're gonna love it. When you hear ping, ding, <laughs> yeah, hop and ding, is it just a, it's just such a cool avenue, which is why we all do it, dude. And I want to give, and I don't normally do this, and I don't do it enough, so I hope it doesn't just come off sounding cocky. But uh, I want to give a huge shout out to uh, the two five by fives that took first and place at that first and second place at that match. Yep. That was awesome, Joe Kukowski and Ron Viren tied. Um, yeah, so uh, I'm I'm super proud of both of them, especially Joe for pushing his way up there and making it happen. I mean, I talked to him after that, and he's like, I didn't make any mistakes, and he's like, I got I got to write, I got to save my. He called me yesterday. He's like, I got to save my profile because <laughs> it was on fire. You know, I don't want to lose this profile in my Kestrel. So yeah, he's like, what do I use, append or overwrite? <laughs> And he's calling you to double check. That is, I know that fear. I know that fear. And then one more shout out to John Underwood at the Indiana Precision Match and uh, Carson Brown. They took first and second with six five PRCs that I built. John crushed the field by like I don't know seventeen points or twelve points or something. It was a huge. Um, that was cool to watch. Yeah. That was that yeah. one like mile match or something. It had multiple targets out to a mile, so a lot of people were shooting some bigger bore stuff. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. it's you know it was really cool to see you working with Joe. I know you did some work with Joe um, as a part of a gift certificate. I think you did you put a cert on our finale yeah. prize table. Is that right? Yeah, and then he picked it up, and then you got to spend a you know, it was a full four day hours of training. Yeah, it was four hours of yep. training, and um, yeah, I was I went over to his house and worked with him on stuff. It wasn't this season though; it was right before last season. So yep. yeah, he's been working at but it. This working is the hard. first. This is the first match that we've had this year. So yeah. that would have been in the transition between the two. And he's been working his tail off since then. And man, here he comes into the first match for our series here and, you know, ties with Ron, who is obviously former Nash, first national champion of the PRS Room Fire Series. Yep. And he's headed to the world championships. And, and he's Italy, going so. to the world. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's really cool um, to see where when shooters are especially growing into 22s and taking it seriously, it's a different dynamic for sure. I mean, oh, I'm, dude, it just made me think of something. I, I got back from uh, Phoenix a couple weeks ago. Uh, guess what I did? What did you do? Well, you know, like there's a something, there's a town that's not too far from Phoenix called Mesa. It's in Phoenix oh, metro area, I'm guessing. That's right. And uh, I got to get checked at the guard shack at uh, Namo Capstone and go tour the burger bullet manufacturing facility. Yeah, we only talked briefly. That was the one <laughs> call you made to me. It was like, oh man, I just left burger. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess let's talk about that and just I mean, I'm assuming they must not have been making bullets and they must have been sitting there just, you know, hanging out, chilling out, waiting for you, right? No, they don't do like, anything. Let's say there. Hi to Chad. 
They just yeah, listen yeah. to people that complain on social media. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, seriously. Um, so he, so Jeff met us at the gate, Jeff Esterland, and um, yep. you've talked to him before, right? Oh yeah. Lots. He said, yeah, he said, <laughs> I talk to Francis all the time. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Uh, so Morgan set it up for me to go up there and I was with my dad, hanging out with my dad uh, all week. And I'm like, do you mind if I bring my dad? You know, and she's like, heck yeah, bring him. So, uh, so they were nice enough to give my dad and I a tour. And, um, just when I walked in the doors, it was, first of all, um, a little traumatic, a little bit exciting, like just to see the manufacturing environment that I'm, that I gave up about eight months ago. I mean, it was just so surreal how similar it was. Um, nice gray epoxied floors, uh, vintage presses, you know, they had a bunch <laughs> of, uh, maybe 20 to 30 ton, um, just regular straight side presses, just, um, making jackets, you know, just hammering them out in automatic mode. And, um, you could tell that they, they have, um, high standards for maintenance because these machines, I mean, the bulk of them weren't brand new, but they were clean, like, like spotless, spotless. Yeah. Yeah. Well guarded. I mean, these are just things that, from my manufacturing background, that just jump out to me. If the shop is clean, if it has good safety, um, they care about their employees. Everybody seems to be busy. Like I don't know what everybody should be doing, but you can definitely tell when people aren't doing anything, right? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. And everybody was doing something, and everybody was um, doing something seemingly like it, they were doing it efficiently. You know, they weren't just standing around and congregating. The first place that he took me to was the QC lab. And yeah, they got a lot of, uh, a lot of equipment that I don't even understand to check the metallurgical properties of the, of the brass and copper jackets. Um, the lead cores, they got, uh, tensile machines. So I, I don't really want to give away too much of the inner workings of how they make jackets and how they assemble the core and cup and turn it into an actual bullet because I don't know what I'm allowed to say and what I'm not. But um, they, their quality lab, you can tell that they spared no expense in making sure that they make the best bullet possible. And obviously, you and I both shoot burger bullets. We know that mm-hmm. just from seeing them and shooting them and seeing how they perform. But it was just refreshing to go in there and see how much inspection they do and um, at each work cell. They have computer monitors that tell them uh, how often to measure, and they have to input those measurements, and then it gives them real-time SPC data. And then um, if they ever have to stop a machine because for any reason the bullets are contained, and then they can segregate those from the main lot, and they always start a new lot whenever the machine's turned off, no matter what. That's super cool. Yeah, so it's a continuous lot. And, you know, there might be one lot that's just two boxes, I guess, if they turn it on and they... At some point in that lot, it starts making a measurement that starts to look like it's going to go out of control because that's that's the main benefit of statistical process control is that you stop a process before it stop, starts making bad parts, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so if you if you realize that's happening, you can stop it. And if it looks like it's going to go out of control, you stop it and then you don't make any bad parts. Then you adjust the machine, you replace the tool, you lubricate the machine, whatever you need to do, you turn it back on and now that's a new lot. That has slightly could have slightly different um, adjustments, but it's in, within control again, and you just kind of keep just keep running it and keep it segregated. Yep. You know, it's funny because that sounds a lot like what we do while we're shooting matches, right? I mean, we're 
we know that our guns are changing ever so slightly. Our zeros are changing. The wind is changing. And effectively, every stage can be treated like a lot of bullets or like a production run. You're just tracking everything little by little. Oh, there's this little change. Keep making a change. Okay. For the next stage, what do we have to do to kind of pick up where we left off, but account for what we have to change? And it sounds like there's a lot of similarities just in the way that they're approaching it. But from a manufacturing level, they're, we know that they're just they're absolutely killing it in terms of consistency. I know I've had, I've got so many freaking yellow boxes under my bench right now and any single one of them, I know that they're going to run, you know, within a few feet per second of each other. The zeros are going to be the same. The BCs are going to be virtually identical and there's almost nothing I can do to shoot them differently. They're just going to keep doing what they always do. Yep. So when I first shook hands and met Jeff in the parking lot, since I had never met him before, um, we were standing outside and you could see the, um, the 22 tunnel where they do the 22 data cause they do oh, it yeah. there and then they do it in Ohio yeah, as well. The wind tunnel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like the testing. Well, windless facility. tunnel. Yeah. Indoor shooting range. Yep. Yep. And, um, if people aren't familiar with that service, it's really backed up. So you'll have to get in line and you'll wait a few months, but, um, they test your barreled action they put it i think they put it in a fixture it wasn't uh i wasn't able to go in there when they were when i was there but i think they put your barreled action in a fixture and they test all the different lots of ammo that they have minimum five thousand units of and once they figure out which one they like that your gun likes best then they they send you the proof um target card with all of the stuff and then you can buy 5,000 I think minimum you you have to buy 5,000 you don't have to buy the ammo if you don't want to buy it but um, you can buy 5,000 rounds of 22 ammo whichever one your gun likes the best so it's a pretty awesome service and then they had a tunnel right behind that that was for center fire testing so all of their bullet lots are tested Uh, I don't know the exact frequency I didn't dig into that but they had a two or three hundred yard tunnel right beside that um, 22 tunnel that they test all of the center fire bullets that they manufacture on the property um, that was that way cool. super cool. Yeah, yeah. So I stood there in the parking lot and I said, Hey, before we go inside, uh, people are going to ask me after this tour, where are my one Oh fives? You know, <laughs> where, where are they? When are they? I said, that's my favorite bullet on the planet. Uh, people are going to ask me cause they're going to know that I went here. And, um, so anytime you want to point out a reference to one Oh fives or how one Oh fives are made, or if there's anything different, like going through this tour, feel free to point it out. And he said, no problem. I said, well, are you running them today? He said, no, we're not. (laughs) (laughs) And so when we go in there, I kind of forgot about me, you know, jabbing him about that. And um, halfway through the tour, he's like, you see that new new press right there? And it was nice, fully enclosed. Um, I can't remember what kind of press it was, but it, um, he's like, that's that we brought that in to take in the backlog for the 105s and six other six mils and he said that some ungodly number of six millimeter bullets was scheduled in that machine and the number is uh leaving my brain right now so i don't want to say it and be wrong but it was like months worth of production that was going to be running that machine and just on 105s to start so uh so that i want everybody to know that they are uh, investing into more machinery and he literally said that it was supposed to be running within a day or two so uh, and it's strictly jackets, so that thing is just putting out jackets. Um, the That's jackets, awesome. yeah, the jackets are the slowest process point. Um, actually, that's not the slowest process point. The slowest is actually the assembly of putting the core in the jacket. Um, but they have, yeah, but they have a lot more of those machines. 
Um, I guess the jacket is the the holdup because there's so much intricacy in the dyes to make the jackets um, in the multiple stations and stuff. So um, they just want to make sure that they're not making stuff that's not perfection, you know? So they like to ease into that thing. And the new press, um, like I said, it's going to be making 105s. And then we walk down the line and the 156 EOLs are running in the the bullet (laughs) assembly area. The 180 hybrids are running. Um, A ton of the 130 AR65, I I forget what it is, AR hybrids, I think they're called. Yep, the AR hybrids. Um, A lot of those go for... um, production like bullets assembled ammunition for other customers um but those were the big big runners and i mean just everybody's interested in 156s and all the f-class guys love the 180s so just shout out the 105s 156s 180s like they're in production um they're making them as fast as they can there's nobody standing around i promise yep yeah you know it's Working at AV, you know, one of the things that you learn really quickly is that the perfection of a bullet is one of the most most important aspects of having a precise rifle, right? Not an accurate rifle. Precision is the ability to hold a small group. Accuracy is the ability to hit your target. And the jacket concentricity or the swaging of a lead core so that it's perfectly centered within the bullet and the jacket being in uniform thickness is a really critical component for making sure the bullets can be spun up to nearly or over 300,000 RPMs and not have a, you know, dynamic instability where they're just, they're wobbling themselves out of balance and then having high drag or inconsistent drag. So uh, there's one of the books I'm trying to recall the exact book, forgive me, I forget, but there actually is one where they, you can, we put some correlation to the thickness or let's call it the offset of the core in relation to the jacket. So if the jacket were, say, in a one to two ten thousandths, not thousandths, ten thousandths out of balance by being thinner on one side than another, and your CG moves off center by in the ten thousandths realm, how much that causes your, let's call it your angular dispersion to grow. And it's mind-numbing. Like, it, it grows very quickly as a result of the imbalance between a bullet that's spinning with a CG that causes it to wobble because it just spins about the CG it once probably, it's free. Yeah, it probably works its way out in BC variation because it's not totally stable compared to the other ones, or it has a different yeah, stability factor. Would. Yeah, if it's if it's actually pitching, you know, front to back, and the, the nose is actually yawing about, yeah, you would get variations in drag from bullet to bullet as right. a result. So you would see highs and lows, and you see deviations in your point of impact. It's not just that. There's a a mechanic where when you have an imbalance, it's when you're trying to spin it, while it's constrained, it stays exactly where it is. But when it leaves the muzzle, it will exit, I believe, I'm trying to remember the exact physics. Brian knows it like the back of his hand, but the well, it's probably not linear, like, tangential to the CG where, where it gets offset. So if you can imagine spinning something like, imagine spinning a hammer, right? The hammer throw um, when in the Olympics, when they're spinning that big ball around. And as they spin it, wherever you let go, it releases tangential to the direction you let go. So you actually are spinning it. It's moving. You're pointing in one direction, but as soon as you let go, it just continues where it was going as soon as you release it. So the same thing happens with a bullet. If the CG is spinning, wherever the heavy point is, it wants to continue moving to that direction. So it will sort of deflect yeah. or move that direction. As that well. makes sense. Like yep. once it, once it exits the crown, it's unconstrained. And it's, yeah. It's yep. not constrained anymore. 
it's going to trend towards that out of balance side. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. So I just wanted to say that that was cool. That was cool of them to invite me out. I was in the area anyway. So, um, yeah, it's just something I wanted to stop by and I hung out there for, I probably bugged him for two hours on the floor. I apologized afterwards, but in the middle of it, I was not, <laughs> the time had slowed down and I was just in the zone. It was cool. Yeah. Burger capstone, um, you know, Namo, man, there's some really smart people, but also really nice people. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, shooting for Vitavori and you know, shooting with team burger and, you know, being a part of their team is, has been truly incredible just because of the people that are involved. And you can tell that they care not only about their customers, but they really do legit care about us as people. And we chit chat and talk all the time, just about random stuff. It's not usually about work. It's usually just about whatever comes up. So yeah. And they care about the sport, the sports and mm -hmm. it's going there, realizing that competitive shooting is just a fraction of the ammunition that they build or the bullets that they make uh, it's just such a small piece of the pie yet they still care about us so much um, and then realizing that burger um, bullets is such a small fraction of the NAMO group <laughs> and all the yeah. other things that they do for defense and for all, all kinds of other things um, I don't even know all, all they do but it's just it's a sliver of a sliver type scenario and um, that's why I'm just super thankful that they have the people that they have there. Um, I think I think Jeff said that Walt's grandson is the production manager there. So I mean, it's it's multiple generations um, in that facility. It's it's way cool just to see what they've done, and it's not like you can do that uh, overnight. You're not going to figure out that stuff. It's generations of innovation, like incremental innovation, like very small guess and check yeah. test make a hypothesis test <laughs> and yep i know that brian had has had a lot of uh, interactions and has a lot of influence in, in the direction that those types of things happen and how they happen and the data um, gets fed back into it so i'm just uh, happy to be a part of it and um, proud to represent that that brand and those people like you said the people mm -hmm. when i when i look back at the people that sponsor me or slash us um I, I literally see just that. I see people, not necessarily the brand. Um, I see the products and the people that make them and that use them and that, uh, you know, that stand behind them. So that's just super cool to me. I love that, that aspect of it. Yep. All right. So one, one of the questions that keeps coming up, and it's like a thorn in my side because I feel, I don't know, I feel like people... It puts me slightly on the defensive, and it shouldn't, because um, people know that we have a relationship with the best bullet manufacturer on the planet. They know that we have relationships with applied ballistics, so that we have endless amounts of data and information. And we think and we say that um, it's pretty easy to put a bullet on target um, at distance. And then there's a lot of other people that either don't have that same understanding or don't think that it's that easy and so they they get frustrated uh, because they can't shoot this bullet or they don't understand how to make the Kestrel work and what I'm really talking about is people want to know how to true up their ballistic solver but um, we have never answered that question <laughs> no not we've directly we've, we've never directly it way answered it 
So I wanted no. to ask you, why, um, why do you think we've never answered that question? Yet. I mean, we're 57, 57. I'm going to say two ways. We're like 60. Dude, we've been doing this for a year. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're almost yeah, 60 episodes in, so. In fact, this episode may, oh no, first episode is going to be right around now. We're getting really close. I think this will be recorded almost on our yeah. one year from the time we recorded Very anticlimactic. First. I mean, this yeah. isn't anything fancy. I'm just saying, like, <laughs> yeah. thinking about, think about the amount of hours that we've been on this podcast talking and we haven't talking about we haven't talked yet about truing your ballistic solver why do you think that is i personally i think it is because you and i know that we take it sort of for granted in the sense that we've learned the system inside and out but the other reason for that is um you know working for applied ballistics you know i think when we've talked in the past it's like hey that's really let's leave that with applied ballistics so to speak because that's what we do at work and i think it's kind of a to me it's a part of both of those one you know, we have some resources at work where I felt like that made more sense to talk about it through work as opposed to uh, between you and I and what we do at matches. In the same sense, we have so many other things that we need to discuss that have nothing to do with truing that can arguably be more, arguably be more impactful for the average shooter because truing can be done once you find a target. Even if it's just send around a thousand and watch it hit low, it's add five tenths. You have a solution now. And, and that process is actually learning to spot shots is really hard. And there's some some details you have to understand about it, learning to build perfect positions. But none of the, the processes around truing are really that difficult. They just take understanding of how the system works. So I can't say beyond that why it would really be, you know, why we haven't talked about it. Those are the things that come to mind for me. I have uh, my own answer for that. Um, what I want to point out is... Well, my, my answer is that because I personally don't, I don't do it because I don't, I don't true my data. And I know that sounds weird and we're probably going to go through some truing techniques and you're going to say, well, you do, you do adjust your zero height. You, you might tweak your velocity knowing that you're probably going to speed up over the course of the weekend. But when I think about truing, it makes my skin crawl because it means that I am overriding inputs that I know that mm-hmm. I should know are true and forcing my bullet to uh, forcing my solution to say what my bullet hit without understanding why it, it impacted where it did. And that makes me really uncomfortable. And I think our 16th episode was called a million ways to be wrong. Um, choose one. <laughs> and this is the episode where I think that we, what we were trying to say is that these are all the reasons why you shouldn't need to true. You need to address all of these other things if if your bullet is not landing where you expect it to land. And so that was, in my opinion, that was our answer to truing. And we did do it pretty early in our journey here. So it was episode 16. So if you guys haven't listened to that, um, go back and listen to that one uh, after this episode or before this episode if you want to pause it. But I really think it's got... All the things, and quote unquote, like I said, that keep me up at night, like all those things that make me concerned that something may not be right. And um, other thing I'll say is that it's um, it's nestled in between some of our higher played episodes, like um, yeah, low development true. for PRS. Uh, what is the other one? Should you ever clean your rifle? Clean your rifle. Yeah. So Eric Cortina was in there. It's right between yeah. those two episodes. And it has about 60% of the plays that those two episodes have. 
So oh, and spotting and Morgan downrange effects. Yeah. It's right after that. Yep. yep. So so I'll say the people that cared enough to listen to those few episodes and and go crazy over those episodes. I really feel like if you didn't listen to episode sixteen, you're selling yourself short. It may take a little bit long to get started. Or maybe there was something in it that turned you off, but you really, I think that there's things in there that you need to know before you try to true your rifle. That's all I want to say before we start talking about truing. Yeah. So I personally avoid the topic, um, and I had somebody get kind of crappy with me in a post that I was just trying to help, um, and he went back and forth with me on it, and I, you know, I'm very PC on the internet. I, I got nothing to get excited over and and argue with people. I, I try to help people. Um, but it, I could tell he was getting frustrated and my responses were basically like, um, Austin Bush would say that was easy. My, my responses were like, <laughs> but it's so easy. Uh, yeah. and I wasn't saying it like that, but my responses probably sounded a little sarcastic, but they weren't meant to. So I just messaged a guy and I'm like, dude, um, I'm not trying to get you fired up. Just call me. And he called me and we talked for like 40 minutes and it was all good. I helped him on his way. Um, so we can go over some of those things, but, um, yeah, I've had similar experiences. I've had guys lots of them. say, Hey, message us. And they go, Hey, this isn't lining up. So like, well, Hey, rather than me trying to type back and forth, can we just have 10 minutes on the phone? It's not, well, we're also not inviting people to say, Hey, just call, reach out and we'll call you. But the point being, when we walk through it, usually it's, it's either a, so fundamental like there's a problem in their solver that's so fundamental that it's easy to overlook and it cause and it corrects all the problems once it's fixed or it really is something really unique that doesn't make sense but you have to know so many pieces to the puzzle to say like all of these things are right and only then in this position that you're at the range if you took perfect notes, can you really leave and come back four days later and say, Hey, I did this, this, and this, and why is it wrong? Well, that, you ha- have to, <laughs> I have to trust everyone else's inputs to know that, okay, so you took the temperature, the pressure, the humidity, your direction of fire, your gun was zeroed, your offsets weren't in, you were using the right profile, like, and on and on and on and on. You know, that's a lot of trust to say, Oh, well, then I don't know why it's right or why it's wrong. That's a really difficult thing to do. So, you know, you and I have taken the time to learn all of the inputs so that we know them cold. So we can say most order of magnitude effect for what we're seeing to the least order of magnitude effect to what we're seeing. And from there, there's a point at which it's it's such a small effect. We either ignore it or we just account for it with a zero offset and move on. And yeah, so but that's not describing truing. That's just all the stuff that leads up to it. Hundred percent. So, um, I guess let's just assume that all of your inputs are correct and you're going to go back and you're going to listen to episode 16. You're also going to go to the science of accuracy Academy uh, because applied ballistics just put out two new episodes on truing. It was like they were talking, Mm -hmm. you guys were talking about it and it was so articulate. You guys went through every bullet, every different um, item in the Kestrel and you talked about how it influences your elevation. Uh, And then, Basically, in the second episode, I think you were talking about how to actually do something about it and all, all kinds of fun stuff. I mean, there was super awesome examples in there that I wish I could repeat, but I'm not trying to plagiarize what you guys came up with on the spot. Yeah. They were just really good. So I would just say, listen to our episode 16. Uh, go at least listen to the, um, I think you guys have like a snippet. If you're not a member, you can listen to 20, 30 minutes of it or something, right? 
Yeah, you can listen to half the episodes now. That's something yeah. that's actually changing. Um, so you can listen to the first half of every episode. They're generally about an hour to almost two hours. Average probably around an hour and 15 minutes. So you'll get 30 to 45 minutes of the first and the second episode. Um, the second half, you know, member, there's a, it's $10 a month, $9.95 a month, and you can listen to the remainder of it. So even if you sign up for a month just to listen to those two, it'll cost you 10 bucks, but it's worth its weight in gold. There are tons, there's 78 or nine. By the time you hear this, probably a few more episodes, plus 20, 30 videos, um, plus some bullet data sheets and some new things coming even yet that I can't talk about. Yeah. So, so. if you go there, make sure you put miles to matches in the comment coupon section yeah, or something yeah, exactly. as a reference tell them we sent you um but so i want to assume that let's just assume for the for the purpose of brevity here and getting to the point because there's going to be people that uh want to know why and then there's going to be, be people that don't care why they just want to know how to adjust it and so, honestly mm-hmm. sometimes you don't have time to figure out why you just need to get a field expedient solution so let's Correct. assume that you've listened to episode 16 you've listened to the science of accuracy episode part one of truing and you have all of your inputs correct what are your yep. options to lining to truing up your data let's say you have a hundred yard zero not a hundred meters zero thinking you have a hundred yard zero you have a hundred yard zero you know your point of impact on that paper is point of aim point of impact so you've got no zero shift what are your options to making your data line up if it's yeah, say it's, three tenths off at a thousand it's muzzle velocity and bc and yeah. and also cal dsf those are the three ways you true using the applied ballistic solver uh, using a Kestrel, it's your muzzle velocity, your BC, and your in a Cal DSF. But in order, those three need to be done in that order. They yeah, need to be first. You true to your muzzle velocity. It's a short range truing that would now short range. And this is where a lot of people, you know, I, at least I hear this all the time, and I, I think it's worthy of us pointing out. When I hear people saying, "Oh, I'm truing," most of the time, the first thing I hear is, "Yeah, I had to change my BC by blank." Oh, how far were you shooting? Oh, I was at 900, 800. What are you shooting? A six mil? Like a dasher? Yeah. Oh, that doesn't get transonic until almost 1,100 yards. For most of the altitudes we shoot at, it'll be well past, if it, just past 1,000, like 1050 to 1,100 is where you start to be able to true, closer to 1,200. And that means that if you're changing your BC at eight to 900, the cumulative effect, BC has a cumulative effect on your range uh, and your drag. So changing BC at that range at like 800 or so yards is effective, is ineffective. It doesn't actually line up and you can make it line up, but it's going to be off somewhere else in your solution. So what do you mean by and later. cumulative effect? Um, let's all call it the magnitude of the error. So let's put it a different way. There's three main ways, right? Zero, if you're off by a tenth on your zero or two tenths on your zero, that two tenths goes all the way through all of your solution. Assume everything else is perfect. One tenth at zero being off means you'll be one-tenth off at four, one-tenth off at nine, one-tenth off at 1,200, 1,500, one-tenth off at 10 miles. Yeah, it assumes that everything else is perfect. Yeah, it assumes that your curve is correct. It's just shifted up or down. Shifting up or down. The whole curve. It says your point of impact is going to be shifted up or down. So if you have that perfect, the next point is your muzzle velocity. Muzzle velocity decay happens very, very rapidly uh, over the first several hundred yards. And as the projectile slows down approaching transonic, the, the decay with which that uh, muzzle velocity drops off is lower and lower, meaning it doesn't decrease at a, a some rate. Once you hit actually subsonic, 
um, it drops quite a bit, actually. Your drag on the projectile changes, and it slows down very slowly versus quick, more and more quickly. So it takes a long time, several hundred, like 800 to 900 yards for our 6 mil cartridges, for the BC to have affected your drop enough for you to resolve it downrange. So, like, say, one point of BC, if you think it's 300 and you actually it's 299, it takes hundreds of yards for that to accumulate to where you'll be able to resolve a one-tenth difference. Ten-tenths or, you know, ten points of BC, so going from a 390 to a 290 or 300 to a 310, would also take you several hundred yards, but you're going to see more effect. Conversely, muzzle velocity being off by 10 feet a second will show up, um, you know, at approximately 800 yards. You'll start to see it in the order of magnitude of about a tenth. Um, same thing for like 20 feet a second, it's about two to three tenths. That shows up much more quickly and at shorter ranges as well. So the, the reason is you're, as you go to a specific distance, as you get further out, you have to use the right variable to true for the distance you're shooting or else you're actually going to induce errors more likely than not they can be offsetting but you're more likely to induce errors at other places short and beyond where you're truing if you're truing the wrong variable 100 percent agree i just wanted you to explain it so i didn't have to <laughs> i figured as much <laughs> so yeah when i see so. when i hear people talk about um adjusting their bc at you know like you said seven eight hundred yards um, go ahead and try it. It takes a lot. It takes a lot of BC to make your bullet move a tenth. It's an yep. uncomfortable amount. Um, yeah, and when you look at bullet production, and when we've measured hundreds of projectiles, I mean, I don't want to cross too much, but I've seen enough bullets just in my own personal shooting, so not to split this and actually talk about personal experience as opposed to work. Um, I've seen enough projectiles and different projectiles to know that the variation from lot to lot for our six millimeter style bullets and six fives um, is really not going to move by much more than about 10 points lot to lot. That's the extreme. In fact, I can tell you that my own bullets, you know, the ones that I shoot 109s and 105s, the most I've ever seen is 10 points. And that's off of multiple lots, one lot being closer to a 290, 292, the next other, another lot, several lots later being like a 298 to a 300. And that's different barrels as well. So, the, the split from the average is plus or minus 0 0.005 BC points. That's minuscule. Yeah. And I, you can't see the difference until 1,100 yards. So uh, my default is make sure that my zero is perfect. If my zero is not perfect, then I uh, adjust the zero offset. Right. We both do that yes. all the time. Yep. So um, at 100 yards, you're always at 100 yards, as level as you can get taking into account the terrain that you're shooting from, from a known range with a known distance on a bench and a surface that you're comfortable from, not shooting in sand when you're used to shooting on gravel or concrete. Um, that also matters, but you need it. Perfect means perfect. Perfect doesn't mean the one bullet is cutting the bullseye and the other six are high of it. Right. Um, that's, that's not perfect. That needs a zero offset yep. in order to be accounted for. So I start with my zero offset and make sure that's perfect. Um, it's not, I say zero offset. There's a zero height and a zero, zero offset. Height, so zero offset. I want to make sure people understand. And ZH it stands for zero height. And it is an offset. It's just in the elevation. And then Correct. ZO is, stands for zero offset in the windage direction. Uh, so don't, don't get those two confused. Otherwise, you'll think you're moving it and you're not. Uh, and then 
I will uh, measure my velocity on a chronograph. Most of the time it's slide radar. Uh, sometimes it's magneto speed, definitely, definitely um, depending on where I'm at and whether I can get a good, like I go to the state property behind my house and there's not a line, a 30 yard line of sight. I mean, I know I'm shooting into the swamp. There's nobody walking back there, but I'm basically just strapping a magneto speed on my barrel and shooting it in the dirt. Um, I don't even have line of sight to set up the live radar, but, but I've got my velocity. Um, I enter that and I will tweak that maybe up to 10 feet per second max. And I don't know what else, um, my, my stuff just, it lines up every time. Now, if you're going to go into the BC, where do you recommend entering the BC at? Like you're saying what, uh, trans, like at the beginning of transonic? Um, yeah, it's Mach 1.2. Okay. So let's say that you don't have a burger bullet and you don't have a bullet that you even know what the BC is. So yeah, if I you're guess. using the AB library, that's sort of solved for you. I mean, we, there's over a thousand bullets in that library. It's if you're shooting a six millimeter, it's probably in there. If you're shooting a six five, it's probably in there. If you're shooting a common caliber, let's, it's more likely with a known manufacturer. It's let's say that you don't want to buy the uh, applied ballistic solver. Yeah, and you've got and you something, some something else, like whatever shooter, yep. whatever. You you, you don't, don't want to go BC. to your box. Yep, okay. You want to go to the box and find what the box is saying is your BC and just punch that in. Okay. So now we've got the G1 zero. or G7. Yep. We've got the zero offset. we got our velocity. we got the G7. Probably. G7. Yeah, yep. probably because it's a bow tail. Um, and we shoot and we're three tenths off. Um, at that point, I'm going to be shooting hopefully at my the beginning of my transonic range. Uh, you said it's one, Mach 1.2. Um, Mach depends on the temperature. It, it is temperature. slightly mm-hmm. temperature. De- it's temperature dependent. Uh, the easy way to it do is. it is to go into your Kestrel on the range card, and you can toggle over, and it shows remaining velocity in that column. And then mm-hmm. you scroll down, and you can see a little dot. It's like just looks like asterisk. a period. Well, there's a period in the transonic, and there's an asterisk yep. in the subsonic. Or so. Yeah. So it's pretty cool that no matter what, if you, as long as you gather current environmentals, and you have your current velocity in there. It's going to tell you where that zone is, and if you get right into that transonic range where your bullet is about to cross into the subsonic zone, which we know that it's a little more unpredictable, um, then you can you should true with your G set with your um, ballistic coefficient in that zone, right? Yep, exactly. Okay. Um, Mach one point two is about thirteen hundred feet a second, give or take. It depends on the speed. Yeah. But you just want to find where your bullet is approximately 1,300 feet per second or so yep. downrange. Yep. And then and at that point is where it, between there and subsonic, right where it goes below the speed of sound, that's where you would want to true um, from that point is subsonic is where you want to true your BC ideally between that 1.2 and, and subsonic. I thought you want to true your BC and the transonic in that BC. transonic. They say, yeah, that is the transonic. Yeah, between okay. Mach one point two and Mach one is your BC true. And then period. after that, basically the only way is you have Cal anything, DSF. yeah, the only way you have control over is Cal DSF, and you want to pick zones um, like three to four or five points. They have to be um, near to far. Like those points have to be sequential. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yep. Okay, starting with the closest, they yeah. have to be at. Say right at subsonic, let's just use yardages for the sake of it. If your bullet's going subsonic right at 1,200 yards, 1,200, you do your first point, and then you would try to stagger them out, you know, at least to say 200 or so yards apart. Um, 
and you just want to keep pushing them back so you can get as many points as you can between you and whatever distance it is that you're shooting. So let's if, if you're shooting a really long ways, um, you know, try to go to the furthest extent that you can from and then cut the points in half between your subsonic, a midpoint to the furthest you can shoot, and then the furthest you can shoot. Yep. So that is the way I understand it as well, and I never have to do it because we very, very rarely shoot into the subsonic zone in PRS matches. Mm-hmm. So I just don't worry about it. The the 1,300, 1,400 yards shot for how rare they happen, uh, they don't win the match. Those those shots don't win the match. Heck no. It's people that, that miss the 400-yard shot on the skill stage that... Um, you know, that I'm going to beat every time because I'm not going to worry about those, the far shots. Um, yeah, you want to be the close, ones that- but if you did your job between your muzzle velocity, your zero, your muzzle velocity truing, and then say, even getting your BC reasonably close, you're going to be close enough if it's a double tap that you'll be able to shoot at it once, even at 13, 1400 yards, see a miss or find a correction and then come back and make it. You're likely going to miss to win call more than you're going to miss to elevation at that point. Yeah, especially at that distance. Yeah. So it's just prioritization of what is the most likely cause for your miss. And at very short ranges, it's usually less wind and also not very sensitive to elevation. It's shooter error. As you go to some intermediate distance, you know, 500, 600 to about a thousand yards, your wind calls quickly become the most important. And there's very little time where the truing process, just for the sake of truing process, being vertically off your targets is going to really encumber you unless something is changing or you have a massive change in your, your barrel or system. Um, or you I have AJ turned off. Like crazy. Or you have AJ <laughs> turned off. Ding, Don't ding, true. I appreciate, that. I appreciate that. Don't true with AJ <laughs> off. When you have 15 mile an hour winds, first of all, just don't true when you got 15 mile an hour winds. If you show up to a match yeah. and your data, so here, how often do we, have you we had, should, did we share this? I think we had it. I already talked about it a little bit, you did, that, you but did. just for those Look. who didn't, yeah, AJ, AJ coming from the left, you'll tend to be low, or wind coming from the right, you'll tend to be high. If you have it and off, if you have it off, um, and if you don't, you'll tend to be more correct. But the point being, yeah, that feature is absolutely critical when you start getting out to some higher winds, effectively above, I'm going to say, 6 to 10 miles an hour as true wind at the muzzle. The closer to full value you get, it's critical that you have it on. Because mm-hmm. you can you can, it's, you can have what's called a positive compensation, right? Uh, and then you can have kind of canceling effects where the, you might have a velocity that's fast and you're, if you, everything was dead calm, you'd be hitting high, but the wind is coming from the left. So it's actually pulling your bullet down just a little and you end up hitting perfect on target. But when the wind comes from the right, it is exacerbated and now you exacerbated and you have double the error in the vertical direction. That's what happened to me at, um, frostbite. Yes, yeah. I agree. Um, so before I forget, um, BC versus custom curves, I want to make sure everybody understands the difference in those two and why to use one over the other. So we've said adjust and manipulate BC like many times in here, but you cannot adjust Mm -hmm. a custom curve. You cannot, not the way you would traditionally do it. You don't change a number and make it, it's, it's going to show as a 1.000 BC. It says custom and then one zero 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 zero. Um, you can't true the BC because it's actually a measured drag and it's not actually a BC. When you use a CDM, it's not using a BC. It's using a measured custom drag model that is 
actually telling you this is the drag from speed to speed to speed of that projectile and it calculates how much it's going to drop you know between each point so instead you have to true with muzzle velocity and that'll get you exactly it'll get you extremely close like i'm saying extremely close closer than you and i can even shoot if you can't and get it with muzzle velocity then you have errors somewhere else there's something there yeah and it's and, i'm like most times i'd say it's likely a scope tracking issue or another input in your solver that's just a little off or that you haven't accounted for wrong range AJ to target or wrong range to target anything something small like that yeah i think people take the wrong range to target thing for granted, granted. all the time mm-hmm. um, match directors can make errors nobody's perfect that's that's an egregious like main large number but just shooting from a different position on a firing line will give you a different distance to target. So there's there's scales of how far off you can be. And the thing that all, that always makes me nervous is a range that has berms that are labeled. Like, I don't trust any of those. It's so easy to ping a berm because you have no idea where that berm was marked from. It's It's got to be mm-hmm. from somewhere. And you don't know if it's where you're shooting from. Let's just say that. So yeah. don't fall into that pitfall of truing up your data that you knew was right at home, don't true it up at the range that you haven't verified the range to targets of. It just doesn't make sense. Yep. Don't do it. And I like what yeah, you said I mean, where you didn't even true up that day because it was so windy, you know? It, yeah. There was nothing you were going to accomplish there. Shooting zero might even be pointless if you've got a 15-mile-an-hour crosswind. Yeah, it and, just and might it build clays, a clays match, it actually was. I mean, we had a true 15-mile-an-hour crosswind um, and upwards of 20 to 25. So when I shot it, it's actually ironic after I had my zero where I had to go confirm dope. I'm like, okay, wind's coming from the right. It is clocking about 20 miles an hour. I should be two to two and a half tenths high at a hundred yards. And we're shooting downhill, but two to two and a half tenths high. Sure enough. I was two to two and a half tenths high. I'm like, okay, that means my zero is correct. Even though then the temptation for the average shooter is to go, oh my gosh, I'm high. If you haven't put all the conditions together, you would drop your target, you would drop your zero, and you'd be two tenths. Okay, now I'm now I'm perfect. Except as soon as the wind comes from the other direction, um, or you're shooting a different direction, your solutions just won't match. And I don't it know can that be people, something that simple. I don't know that a lot of people understand that. So. I guess I don't know if I want to try we, to explain it again, but um, I don't think we need to. Yeah. I think if they really want to know about aerodynamic jump, you know, check out the the applied ballistics long range for uh, applied ballistics for long range shooting. It's the first book. Um, I believe that covers. I'm about pulling it out now as we speak. I believe that covers it, um, and there's several good videos on it. Um, here's gyroscopic drift. I think I opened right to it. I'm pretty sure it's in here, but I'm about to pull it up. Um, but you know, check out the AB books. They actually have exactly what you need. Aerodynamic jump. There you go. There's the equation 568. So I know it's in here. Um, apply ballistics for long range shooting. So I guess the person that adjusts their zero in that wind, if it was just a constant wind direction from that direction the whole time, um, you could probably zero in that condition. And then not put wind in there and be fine, <laughs> you know, for elevation. But you could just hold whatever everybody else was holding. But as soon as the wind starts doing something else, like turn to a headwind or turn from the other direction, you are absolutely clueless. Yep. So you get hosed. Yeah. So you got to have something in there. I know there's people that say that it overestimates it. Um, 
if you want to, you can up the twist rate in there so that it reduces that. But I would just say, leave it on until you, until you can prove it for yourself. It's pretty easy to do, um, you know, on a windy day. You can prove it to yourself, and you just shoot your zero that you knew was good the day before and measure it like you did two-tenths. just makes sense. And whenever you're doubting what you're seeing on paper on zero day, make sure you have the actual wind in your kester, and it'll tell you what it should be. Yeah, exactly. You just you should see that it's telling you to dial down or left or right or up or down, whatever direction you're hitting. It sh- your kestrel should tell you this is what you need to do in order to hit zero, and it should match what you see on target. So yep. that's a that's the easiest way to know that you have all the right inputs and that what you're seeing is right. But that is also the hardest part because in in ca- certain cases, you know, you'll feel wind at the shooter right around you but just forward of you and from the muzzle forward or half the rifle it's softer or it's less like we've talked about this in the ground layer effect or ground uh, ground drag or air drag that happens close to the ground right the airspeed slowly yeah, increases surface. as you go closer and closer to the surface or away from the surface it's slowly increasing so but you measure when you hold your kestrel up in the air it's say seven to eight feet in the air with your arms straight up that's one value but if you do the same thing, do it at the ground where you're shooting prone from your zero. If that's measuring two, three miles an hour, then that's what your wind is. Yeah, I have if, a perfect you know, example 20, for that. Mm-hmm. Um, you weren't at this match, but it was, I think, last summer. And uh, NPRC did a match off-site at this farm field. And oh, yeah, yeah. there was knee-high corn. And corn. most, and most mm-hmm. of the props were a foot above that corn. And, and everybody, including myself on the first stage, had my little tripod with my wind meter that's another two feet above me, measuring wind literally six to eight feet above the corn. And I couldn't, well, the first stage, I figured it out. But it just blew my mind how that corn was able to absorb the wind right at the layer there. And most of our bullets were flying a foot over that dang corn for over half the bullet flight. Um, and yep. the wind was literally less than half of what it was at the eight foot mark. It was really cool mm-hmm. to see and see it in practice. And then I was able to extrapolate that for a couple of different firing directions that only shot over maybe 50 yards of corn. And then it was wide open, like it went down a hill. And I was able to prove that right out. Like, hey, my my uh, kestrel on the tripod was more accurate now versus my number that I've been trending with all day that was basically a foot above the corn. So I, I learned a lot that day about surface uh, surfaced wind and how the the ground can, you know, play with your, your wind numbers. It was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, a, it's definitely complicated. And, you know, we're not taking it lightly when we say, you know, truing is easy. We're, we're not saying that, you know, tongue-in-cheek and like, ha-ha, that's the secret sauce that we're never going to give away. It's actually kind of the opposite. It's like truing itself is very easy. What's difficult is understanding all of the variables that go into a trued solution or not, I shouldn't say into a trued solution, knowing that all the variables leading up to a true solution are correct. That is the really hard part because conditions change and you can break these conditions down into three major components. We talk about it in, you know, on the AB podcast at the Science of Accuracy Academy, you know, you have your gun inputs the things that your rifle is set up you set it once and you shouldn't have to change it for that barrel like that's it then you have your bullet the bullet you're shooting how fast it's going uh zero aspect everything that happens before it leaves the muzzle and what range you are trying to zero it at 
And then you have everything beyond that hundred yard mark. You know, what's your BC? What's or excuse me, what's the wind? What's the environment? Air temperature, pressure, humidity, uh, your elevation, all of those things. And it's very easy with the myriad of you know, I think it's fifteen. It's fifteen or seventeen. I can't remember the exact number now, but all the variables that you can put into it. One of those can be wrong very easily. And sometimes you can put in the right number and have the wrong unit and cause the same error. So it's not just the number of variables. It's the number of variables plus the number of settings that are in your Kestrel to change the units that can cause error. Okay. So just being aware of those is honestly 90% of the battle. I have a question for you. Okay. Um, so let's assume somebody is truing with BC. Can you think of a reason why... BC would be different at home versus, you know, five to 800 to a thousand miles away from home. Uh, yeah. Air density and being right on the verge of instability. Okay. So assuming your bullets are stable, same question. If they're, if they're safely stable, no. Okay. Cause that's what, that's what makes me wonder when people go to a match and they're starting to true and they are true in their BC. That just makes me so confused. You're like, how could it be different? But I agree with you. Uh, I like your answer because that is the only way, um, unless there's some obstruction in your barrel that's messing yeah. with the jackets. And, and that was the other one I was going to mention: is just barrel age comes into a comes into play at but some it, point. If it's really doing detrimental effects to the jacket, there can be some weird things that occur. But I mean, those are those are rare. I mean, you have to be usually thousands of rounds into a barrel at the very tail end, the last five to ten percent of a barrel life before you could ever possibly see it. And even then you're talking negligible effects, like, you know, a few points of BC, you know, maybe one to 2%, not so, you know, if you have a 300, you're talking maybe 297 to 294. And that's barely a blip on the radar at a thousand, 800 to a thousand yards. I agree. Might be a 10th, maybe two, maybe. That's just, it's such a, it's such a difficult thing to attribute a cause to be the causal, the root causal effect that I, I just can't fathom it. Um, well, what do you, since you said stability in my mind is just churning on stability. Now, um, we both run seven and a half twist, six mils, yes. right? Yep. Um, and I run one Oh fives. And I, I, how do you feel about the burger twist rate calculator? If, if you guys don't know, burger has a free twist rate cal- calculator on their website. And, um, you can put your environmental data, your, your velocity, your bullet in there, and the overall length, which is um, how they what they use to calculate the form factor and, and basically yep. decide uh, how stable the bullet is. <clears throat> so when it spits out this number, it says, okay, here's your level of stability. And anything below 1.5 is marginally stable. Anything below 1 is unstable. I basically live like right on that line of marginal, like yes. marginal to 1.7. So... I don't know. So marginal makes people uncomfortable. I'll tell you that right now. Just that word marginal being on that website. And I have a lot of people call me, you know, and trying to decide what twist rate they want to have their six millimeter barrel chambered in. And I'm like, why are we having this question? Like, why is this a debate? Like (laughs) to me, it's so easy. And I'm like, well, it's seven and a half. That's what I run. I run everything at seven and a half. It just shoots, shoots all the time. I just flew to Idaho and shot in 20 degrees, you know. I'm sure my bullet was like 1.35, marginally stable, but it shoots. Yep. Um, and I think people get uncomfortable when they see something that's not 
perfect or not better. It's like it's the same curse that makes people spend ten times more money than they need to on something. You know, they they think it's better or whatever. So I'm not trying to dispel where that line is drawn. Um, I'm just saying that people shouldn't feel comfortable if they're living on that line for a good bullet that's manufactured well and and has a history of performing well. I know people that run eight twists and yeah. they're six and they're six mil barrels. Yeah, and they do fine. Yeah. Yeah. The only time you really see it, I mean, it's the form you're talking about is the Miller stability formula. Um, it's the, essentially a formula that calculates how stable a projectile is um, based on atmospheric conditions. And it uses length and a couple other things. But uh, if you're above a 1.5, so 1.50 to 1.6, as soon as you go above that, you can put in your temperature. And above that, you're safely stable. And there's a little bit of float there. I mean, between 1.5 and 1.6, you're considered completely stable. Below 1.5, you get to what's called marginally stable. But it's not until 1 that you get unstable. The bullets will keyhole and go sideways. you know. But in between there, as you get closer to 1, 1.4, you may not see it. You're going to see just a degradation of BC. That means the bullet will oscillate or have some extra drag. As a result of a little bit of instability as you get either, like say it's really cold, it'll have a little instability and just be, let's call it wobbling longer, slightly. Um, you probably wouldn't even see it on target, you know, at 100 yards or a couple hundred yards, but you would see it as, you know, lower BC. Well, if you, just, if you get to 1.6 or 1.7 or 1.8 or 2 or 2.2, at some point um, it's irrelevant and it's basically everything above like a 1.5 to 1.6. If you're at that in the worst conditions, which is how I calculate it, I go, what's the coldest match I'm going to shoot at the the coldest match at the lowest altitude that I could at the slowest speed that I could possibly shoot out of this barrel or this twist rate um, or the heaviest, longest bullet that I plan to use for that barrel. Um, I'll just look at it. And if it comes out as a 1.5 to 1.55, I know there's virtually no way I'm going to be compromising my BC as a result of stability. It's just, it's, almost impossible well i bet you you shot matches under 1.5 and done really well that's what i was trying to say i did so i did i had eight twists my very first season it was all eight twists and i did some math and yeah i was running like a 1.4 and i shot really well my rookie season i think uh people just needed to hear that that's all i'm saying Mm -hmm. i like seven and a half for six mils even up to the one tens and plus that's just i agree with that i think the okie boys shoot eights with one tens sure. yeah i'm not sure yeah i wish i don't actually know that but and they're running slower they're now. running like 2750 yep all right so i don't want to say it's easy but i think that the hard part is making sure that all the inputs are correct yep and Episode that's why 16. i say that truing is easy because once you've got all the inputs correct then you're going to be within a tenth, and within a tenth is within your ability to shoot and the build, your ability to of your gun to perform. I don't think anybody has a one-tenth gun. Yeah, I actually want to go even a, a statement further than that and say if if you think, if you know that you're uh, plus or minus, let's say, one and a half tenths, if you're shooting one MOA and you're truing and trying to say, oh, I'm a tenth low at blankety-blank yardage, a uh, tenth low is less than half of your normal group variation at 100 yards, and it's only going to grow from there. So you probably shouldn't worry about that. Yep. It's not until you have any error 
that you can shoot enough rounds to be certain that the error is more than you are capable of shooting at range. And if you're, you haven't shot at range a lot, put 10, 15 rounds on paper because you might need all of those to see if the group actually forms up or if it's your bullets or your velocity or some other error causing it. Because um, if you shoot five rounds on, you know, uh, let's call it a high SD bullet, and those five all happen to be slightly slow and they end up low on target because they're extreme spread during, you know, they're 15 or 20 feet per second slower than your average. Um, it's not uncommon, but if you're only using two or three rounds, that's really easy to do. And now you start tinkering with BC and you really shouldn't be. It's just, that's your gun has 20 to 30 foot per second of extreme spread minimum. If you're using an SD and like say the 15 range, you're going to be more like 50 ES or higher when you start getting into lots of rounds. So seeing hit shots that hit even 10 to 20 inches low at a thousand yards is normal for SDs in that range. Yeah. So, and the guy that I was talking about earlier, uh, nice guy. So I'm not trying to single him out, but he was specifically trying to true up for uh, a thousand yard shot that, and that's a, that's a typical distance that I would say, okay, yeah, you can true up at that distance. If you're, mm-hmm. if you're three tenths low, you got to do something about it. Um, cause most plates are going to be in that five tenths at that distance and three tenths will put you off the plate. So, yeah, but, but then we get to talking and he's like, yeah. And, um, my dispersion at a thousand yards is like, um, 20, what do you say? 20 inches yeah. or two over, over top, two. top to bottom of an Ipsic. Yeah, yeah. Over, over two MOA right around or over two MOA is what he said. That's his natural dispersion in a calm day. I said, well, you got a problem. Like that's, that's, you can't true that out. You can't make your group smaller. Um, and, you know, if your group is shooting that big, you can't trust any one of those bullets to be the center of your group. You know, you'd have to shoot 50 mm-hmm. bullets to know where your average group center and at a thousand yards, very hard to measure. You know, you're going off a puff of dirt or something. You're not hitting the target with all of them. So how are you measuring? How are you measuring where those bullets are? And then say you've shot 10 of them in the dirt and you're saying, well, here's kind of the average group center. What are you actually truing to? So. I got him to say, okay, <laughs> I don't need to true just yet. I need to work on my load or my ammo or get a different bullet. Um, yeah. I just said, I, I recommended he, he was pushing a little hard. I said, hey, slow those things down 100 feet per second and call me back after you shoot it. <laughs> and he texted me back. He's like, it's better, but it's still not great. I'm going to have to try a burger bullet. <laughs> so I said, okay, yeah. good idea. <laughs> but yeah, you get I mean, what you can get, I guess, at this point. Yeah, and look, it's you know we obviously shoot burger and we really really like them. Um, there are other really good bullets out there. You know, do do I think that I'm going to do as well with other projectiles as a, compared to a bullet or a burger? No, um, but do I think there are others that get really close or have done really well? Yeah, that's been proven. I mean, bullets from Hornady, bullets from Nosler, bullets from Sierra—they're all really good projectiles, and they've come a long way. I'm not saying bullets have come a long way so generally speaking you know those projectiles are going to be much better than they were 10 20 years ago um, they're just the, the processes to make bullets and the controls to make them have gotten better so find a good bullet find one that you know shoots well you know check it at multiple distances and if you're getting good results yeah start to trust what you see when you true if you're getting you know you know half moa followed by one moa followed by two moa at say 100 500 1000 there may be another reason that has nothing to do with, you know, 
you and your gun. It may be something to do with the bullet. Consider checking it with a different, uh, either slowing it down or checking with a different projectile to see if you can find a better fit. Yep. I agree. Well, we're so, sitting over an hour on this uh, episode, which I really liked that I got to explain the tour of the Burger Factory. I forgot to tell you about that. <laughs> that was kind of impromptu. Yeah, we have not. And it's totally related. That one. Yeah, it's totally related topic. So, um, if you guys have questions, comments, concerns on this, we will definitely do another discussion on this. I, I'm not trying to, like I said before, I'm not trying to oversimplify it or, um, you know, get people frustrated because this can definitely be a frustrating topic, but. Um, we just need to make sure that the inputs are good first before we go messing with the curve. If the curve needs to be messed with, um, there's only a couple ways that we just told you how to do it. Um, proceed with caution. Um, the other thing, hey, one more thing I forgot. Light conditions and mirage. I have seen people Ooh, We true. should talk about this. Yeah. I've this seen people true anecdote. at ranges that should not be true at. Um, this is just not not distances, but specifically at different shooting Conditions. ranges. Different shooting ranges. Like there's some ranges that are no good. And I'll tell you, at my home range at my house, at my parents' house where I shoot 100 yards is not a good scenario for shooting. I definitely wouldn't true there. Like I go there to check loads and stuff. But let me explain the scenario. I got a 100-yard range and right in the middle, there's a hump at 50 yards. And my bullet is basically, my line of sight is like literally an inch over top of this ground. So if there's any mirage at all, it is like soup city. So imagine you're, you got an eight or nine or a thousand yard shot with the same condition. You got a berm or or a, a hump in the terrain where your line of sight is just barely skimming over the top of this thing. Who knows what you're going to get as far as your point of aim versus point of impact. And then you trude it up and you're like, man, I'm, I'm on, like I had a spotter and I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm waterline on this target. And then I go to a match and I'm six tenths low or four tenths high or whatever. Like my whole solution is messed up. So I would just say, yep. take care of all the variables that we talked about in episode 16. Make sure that there's nothing weird about your range conditions, your direction of fire, the lighting conditions. There's just so many things. Um, and I, I'm saying this because I've had people call me and this is the only thing we figured out. And then we went back to a different range and he tested it out and he's like, God dang it. <laughs> That's exactly what it was. Yep. So now I can't shoot at my home range anymore. Like literally he doesn't want to go shoot there anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. it's a tough scenario because there are some conditions that even, you know, we're becoming aware of that you and I have talked about that sort of, they play havoc with what you think you're going to get. You true on it or you make some changes and all of a sudden, those conditions go away and so is your ability to hit targets. <laughs> so Exactly. <coughs> and confidence is has half the battle. So I totally understand somebody that has this concern. Hey, why does my stuff not line up? It needs to line up. It has yeah. to line up. And um, I just, I do less fretting about that because I know that I've, I've put all the inputs in. I know that I've proved at a previous point in time that my solver is correct. So I kind of just chalk it up to some condition at that stage or whatever that I can't flush out. And I don't really need to because that stage is over. And I know that it's not my rifle, you know, 99, nine times out of 10, it's not my rifle. Nine times out of 10, it's not my solver. Um, you know, it's me or it's the prop or it's something about that range. And, and those things can get in your head and they can screw you up for the whole rest of the match. If you don't, if you aren't able to ignore that. Yep. But, if it is something with your rifle or or 
or your ammo or whatever, and you don't do something about it, then you're going to screw up the rest of it anyway. So do what you got to do. I don't know. I don't know which scenario it is. But most of the time, um, I react slowly to those things. Yeah, And, and I end up being uh, better off. Yep. Don't overreact quickly just to, for the sake of doing something. So. And that, that comes with experience and confidence and in your abilities and your equipment and stuff too. So it's very hard to flush that out uh, unless you just keep, you know, you get that trigger time in, you shoot those matches, you shoot in the places you're uncomfortable and unfamiliar with. And those experiences will build to this whole level of understanding of the external ballistics of your, hopefully you're shooting the same bullet every time, the external ballistics of your bullet and then your shooting abilities and your ability to call wind. It'll all start to fall in line sooner or later. I think I want to end this one on one, bring it back to center, drive one point home. Our matches are won between 400 and 700 yards. That is, generally speaking, not going to be affected by your BC or your crew. Get a good muzzle velocity, a good zero, and start shooting. Get better at your positional, get better at your fundamentals, get better at your follow-through and spotting shots. You'll score faster than anything you can do with improving your load development, your SDs, your your BCs, you know, better at trimming. This game is won and lost by positional shooting with good follow-through and good fundamentals. Not how great you are at trimming your kestrel. Yeah. To the it's half well, It's well said, but everybody wants perfection. And to win, I think you need perfection. I do agree with you if you want to be top 10. That's yep. 100%. You can definitely focus on that 700 and in but um, yep. if you're trying to beat morgan or yeah. or you or austin or gain on your best days or pinch or vibber um you know clay justin all those guys yeah then in that case you Obsess. definitely need to have perfection Obsess. you need to be obsessive <laughs> yep. mm-hmm. well i'm looking forward to shooting with you again sometime soon we haven't been on the road Dude, in a little bit it's gonna be right around the corner we should be uh hopefully in a car soon where we can uh we can get some actual in face-to-face going yep. when we're uh, on our way back from to and from Colorado. Sounds good, man. All right, I'm going to let you go. I'm getting kind of ready for bed here. Same here. <laughs> All right, man. Talk to you later, buddy. All right, good night. <laughs>